0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Praise your name that you reign here this morning. Praise your name, Lord, that you reign for all eternity. Lord, as we come before you this morning and open your word, we are thankful that we uh, can come before you, but Lord, also, would you help remind us this morning who you are as God, as Yahweh? Lord, would you strike a right fear, a right respect for your name? Yet, Lord, would you also move us towards the comfort and care that come through Jesus Christ? So, Lord, would you speak this morning? Would you uh, cause this psalm that we're going to look at to resonate in our hearts? Lord, that we could sing the psalm in our hearts going from here and give great praise to your name. So, Lord, do your work this morning, and Lord, we are dependent on you to speak. So speak. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Bryant Strain, and I'm an elder and the youth minister here at E-Free. In um, the past couple of weeks, our senior pastor, uh, Steve Clark, has been on uh, vacation, and so Josh Hicks and I have been asked to fill in, and so here we are. Uh, typically, our, our church works through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, and uh We've, and we've recently been in the book of 2 Timothy, uh, which will likely be picked up again next week. Um, but this morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 8, uh, which is an appropriate passage as we begin to center our thoughts, um, our lives, and our actions in a new year as, as we're thinking who we are and what we're about. Um, and so if you have a Bible uh, with you, uh, pre- please pull that out and turn to Psalm 8, and if you don't, just... So you know that they're available. We have free Bibles uh, at our welcome table, so feel free to grab one of those um, right now if you need one or uh, on your way out so that you can have one. We want to make sure that everyone has the Word of God before them. So, okay, so let's, let's look at the passage here, Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. word of the Lord. Uh, A month ago I found myself in the Denver airport uh, walking from one terminal to another. Um, For those of you that have not been to the Denver airport it is a big airport and to get from one really long terminal to the other you have to go to a train and then walk all the way back down another terminal. As I was walking uh, past each gate each crowded gate with people going uh, to all different parts of the country, I was suddenly overwhelmed with this question of who am I among all these people? Who am I that God would actually care for me? And, And this question just came over me and sat on me and I felt small and lonely and insignificant. Have you guys ever had a moment like this before? One, on one hand, this kind of thought can be overwhelming and scary, yet on the other, I think it's a healthy question to be overwhelmed by. So, as we consider today's passage, a primary concern on my mind is that our culture has displaced the transcendent God with the transcendent self. This is threatening because instead of looking to God for purpose and meaning in life, we look inside ourselves. The transcendent God is easily forgotten because his ways seem irrelevant, hard, or even empty. And the transcendent self is pursued because it appears to offer freedom, ease, and immediate fulfillment. Even Christians fall victim to this kind of thinking, as we are tempted to focus on the presence of God for the purpose of the hashtag blessed life by which we will attain our true heart's desires, thinking that God exists to make us happy. So as we walk and consider this path of the Christian life, I want to consider two primary ditches for us to avoid. On the left side, we have the ditch of forgetting God's transcendence, which leads to reckless, licentious living without regard for God. On the right hand, the right side ditch, I want us to avoid forgetting God's imminence, which leads to hopelessness and despair that God is not personal or that he doesn't care about our circumstances. So when I say the word imminence, perhaps it's a foreign word, what I mean is that the presence, the relational, the caring aspect of, of God in his, his character. So as we look at today's passage, I want to make a brief comment on the purpose of psalms and what what a psalm is intended to do. And so psalms are meant to be meditated on and to shape our thinking, our emotions, and our desires as we look to God. Uh, Psalms are often a song or a poem that one is intended to rehearse over and over again in their mind, Uh, sometimes individually, sometimes with with the church, with the community, And it helps filter one's emotions and circumstances through truth. So as we consider Psalm 8, let's not let this morning become an academic exercise in a passage that we can just increase in knowledge. But my hope is that this can be a song that becomes written in our hearts and becomes personal to us. We can take it with us and sing it throughout the rest of the week. So as we jump in now, uh, we see... Uh, at the beginning of Psalm 8, there's a superscription there uh, where it says, to the choir master, according to the giddith a psalm of David. So we see it's addressed to the choir master, so this is meant to be sung. Um, giddith is likely a musical term for the choir master, but it's hard to know exactly what that means. Um, and then we see, also see that this psalm is ascribed uh, to David, but they put no historical uh, or contextual background on it. So at minimum, we, we can presume that this psalm is for corporate worship, for, for the church to, to sing together. So as we look at the organization, we'll see that at the beginning and the end, there is a, uh, a proclamation put forth. And this proclamation says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this, this proclamation starts this way and ends, ends the psalm, And I think that it is meant to direct us to what the main goal of the psalm is. And that the main goal is that we praise the majestic Lord. So let's keep that goal in mind as we look into this. Would these words help lead us to praise in greater ways? So as we look more at that that phrase there, we see that there are two titles at the beginning. It says, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And then our Lord. So the first one, the capital L-O-R-D. When we, when we see that in the scripture, that points us back to the name that God gave Moses uh, back in uh, Exodus. And he revealed himself. His name is Yahweh, which means I am. And this name shows us that there is no one like, like him. He is who he is, and he does what he does. So th- this name... Yahweh, Lord, is a transcendent name. Then we move on to the next term. We see our Lord. So we see this idea of transcendence, but then we see this idea of, of, of a personal God, a communal or relational God that cares, an imminent God. And this, this shows us a contrast here of we see a God who is transcendent, yet a God who is personal. So as we go on, after these two titles, we see it goes on and says, How majestic is your name in all the earth? So majesty is a theme that runs throughout here. And and typically, majesty is a term that's ascribed to royalty, that seeks to give tribute to God's glory, his might, his fame, his strength, and his beauty. And often, as we think about the majesty of God, it's best brought to life through creation— So we think of snow-capped mountains, which is very easy for us. We think of roaring or calm oceans, whatever your preference is there. We think of the woods, forests, rivers, lakes, sunsets, flowers. Scenes or items that are breathtaking or beautiful. These things sum up majesty. So I've recently watched a Netflix series called The Crown, Maybe you guys are familiar with that. And in, in the crown, we see the life of uh, Elizabeth II, queen of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. And one of the things I love about this show is it, it gives you an inside look of, of her life and the, the royal life and in her palace and in her duties. So think about this, uh, this for, for a second as we think about Her Majesty the Queen Imagine that you have been called to visit her at Buckingham Palace. Upon entering, you are overwhelmed by the grandeur of the property, the buildings, the furniture, the servants, and every little detail you can think of. There is care and attention. For all the glory and attention to detail that surrounds Her Majesty the Queen... How much more so is the majesty of God revealed by his creation? His name is majestic. And yet we see his name is in the earth, not just over, above, around, but it's in the earth. It's present. So this opening phrase is intended to draw our attention to see both the transcendent and the imminent God. This morning I want to reflect on two primary ideas, uh, first being God's transcendent majesty, and the second one being God's imminent care. So God's transcendent majesty and His imminent care. So for the first one, transcendent majesty, and here, here's the point: God's transcendent majesty is evident in and through creation. So God's transcendent majesty is evident in and through creation. So I want to look at the text here and look at two, two aspects of transcendence. So as we uh, look at verse 2, uh, we'll see something about the majestic reign of God. So the majestic reign of God. So we, we looked at one aspect of majesty just a second ago, but now I want to look at his majestic reign. So verse 2 goes like this. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So as we think about this verse, this should strike us a bit odd. The manner of God's majestic reign is through babies and infants. Now, I have a three-month-old baby right now, and that is a silly idea to think about my helpless, vulnerable little baby <laughs> Being the tool or the means that God overcomes the enemy. And so, as we think about this, God has decided to silence the enemy through weakness. And this, this is a prominent theme that we see throughout Scripture. So, we see that there is a the presence of foes and one who is at enmity with God, out for his own selfish gain at the expense of others. There's one who desires God's throne. And as we think about any good, majestic, or just king, that it is his duty to squash a corrupted, delusional man, or being for that matter, who attempts to ascend the throne. In part, it's for the name of the king that he does this, to preserve his own name, but it's also for the good of the kingdom. In this case, it's not because... Uh, This king wishes to maintain control and power at all costs, as if he needs it, but it's because he is power, and he is the only one who can do the job. God is so powerful and sovereign that he is pleased to display his majestic reign over the course of time through weakness. So does this sound familiar to any of you? Weakness triumphing over strength? Well, Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians where he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So we see that God is a majestic king who will reign, but we see something about the manner in which he will reign, and that is through weakness. So God's majestic reign reveals to us something of his transcendence. So the second thing I want to look at here in this passage is uh, in the second part of verse 1 and then in verse 3. We want to consider the sovereign creativity of God. So the sovereign creativity of God. So in, in the second part of verse 1, he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. So as we look at this, the heavens uh, should make us think that when we look up, what do we see? So as we look up, we see the skies, the skies, We see space. We see the cosmos. And beyond that is the heavens where God is pleased to dwell. We see that the glory of God is above all of those. His glory is even above the dwelling place that he has in heaven. And so commonly as we think about heaven, uh, we see these different levels and he's above it all. So the glory of God is above the heavens in the sense that the heavens will most naturally tell us something about the glory and the beauty of God, though they are not God himself. Secondly, in verse 3, he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Notice the, the possessive quality here of your heavens, your fingers, God owns the heavens, the moon, and the stars, and he's put them all in their place. And notice he uses the language of work, uh, work of your fingers. So, so contrast this. Maybe he could have said work with our hands, right? And we all work with our hands, and that, that would make sense. But there's something significant about the work with fingers because fingers represents a, an attention to detail, a specific care for this. And so for this illustration, I'm glad Pastor Steve is gone, but <laughs> this could go bad, I know. Uh, Pastor Steve loves to collect, paint military miniatures. So if you can imagine in a scene over a desk, and, and I've seen this setup up with things that are yay big that have intricate de- details that need to be painted, and, and you need a... Uh, Magnifying glass of sorts to be able to even see the part that you're painting, and you need really fine uh, paint brushes. As we think about these things, the work of the fingers is really important here as we consider detail. In order to bring this, you know, in this case, perhaps a soldier to life, to be able to paint the rifle, to be able to paint the stripes on his jacket. And so with this, uh, we, we notice that God has a great attention to detail and that every star is placed in exactly the right spot, every meteor cruising through the universe at exactly the right time, and the moon is in its perfect place. The glory and creativity of an artist is revealed in their art. So far that their art inspires awe and contemplation due to its beauty and attention to detail. So God is the sovereign, powerful one who takes great care with every detail. Every stroke of the brush shows us something of himself. So this is is how we see God's transcendence at play here in this passage. So now we want to ask the question, what is the relevance of transcendence? Why is transcendence important for us to even think about and talk here? Well, we can put ourselves in the in the place of David perhaps before he wrote this psalm. We can imagine him laying on the ground contemplating the words and ideas here as he lays on his back looking up at a dark yet brilliantly lit up sky. And as I think about this psalm for myself, I have found a growing I have found growing in me this a very strong desire and longing to go somewhere that I can really see the stars to gaze upon the heavens. And I think this longing is good, but it also reveals a a bit of a problem, right? Especially for us here in Salt Lake. The problem is that due to emissions, light pollution, farting cows, um, (laughs) and even our inversion, it's really hard to see the stars and see the sky. And sadly, I often find myself forgetful of the transcendent God. And I'd like to think that the stars would help remind me of him. But the more I think about it, uh, maintaining a proper view of God's transcendence is deeper than whether or not we can see the stars. We compound this problem by the everyday use of smartphones which droops our heads down low and daily occupies hours of our attention. We think about the busyness of the age, the relentless content and marketing vying for our attention. And yet creation calls for our attention and may even say it screams for our attention. And yet the world subverts our gaze away from it and tells us that we, mankind, can become transcendent all on our own. Through the pursuit of freedom, our dreams, unfettered sexuality, travel, economics, fame, popularity, becoming an influencer, the American dream. And in the end, the problem does not lie with the world, but it actually lies with the human heart. The problem lies with the person that thinks there is life and purpose and meaning apart from the transcendent God. To live life independent of God, seeking transcendence of the self, is to equate oneself as an enemy to God. Anyone who opposes God as an enemy will one day be silenced. And transcendence is important, and we must take this seriously, because to neglect it, to neglect the transcendent God as revealed through creation and through Scripture, it may cost us our lives. So, practically speaking, how, how do we gain a greater view of God's transcendent majesty? There's a few thoughts come to mind here. I think the first one is read the Bible. God, the transcendent God is all over Scripture. begins in Genesis 1, and we see his transcendent, transcendence all the way to Revelation. Read, read the Scripture and see how he works out all things for good. And don't just read it for knowledge. Read it as a platform to express praise and thankfulness to God to revel in his majestic name and work. Do we read the Bible so that we can praise God or do we just read it so we can feel good that we've read it or that we know something more? No, scripture is meant to lead us to praise, to worship. So how do we get a greater view of God's transcendent majesty? Let's let's read the Bible. Secondly, Another way we can get a greater view of this is we can look around. We can look at the mountains and give praise. We can look at the sunset and give praise. We can look at the snow cap the snow in the mountains that becomes drinking water for us and give praise. We can go on a camping trip somewhere where the sky is dark and make a point to look at the stars and give praise. We can learn about complex things, read a book, and give praise. We can pray and watch how God's providence is involved in all the small details of our lives and those around us, and give praise. God can be praised in any circumstance, in any scenario of our life. The question is, are we looking? Are we desiring to give him praise? And I'm convinced that if we look, we will see, and we will give praise. Third way that we can gain a greater view of God's transcendence um, is to restore the use of the word creation over the word nature. Now, I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with the word nature. It summarizes the world in a a great way. But in a sense, in the secular world, nature by itself might imply a divorce of the creator from his creation. And so as as we look at the world around us, In our own minds, and again, not to force this onto somebody else, but for our own benefit, do we refer to nature as creation and attribute it to God and give praise to him? So that might be a a subtle and simple way uh, that that we can continue to uh, keep God's transcendence before our minds. So as David looks up at the heavens and their glorious expanse and beauty, There's no question that he knows the transcendent God. But what follows next is a shift in response to the grandeur of the universe and glory of God. And he expresses that in a question. And here's here's his question in verse 4. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And as we think about the implication or the implied answer to this this question is that man is nothing compared to the transcendent majestic God. Man is small potatoes, and I know what that's like. I'm just a dude from Idaho. <laughs> okay <laughs> but but as we think about small that, that's. That, that clues us into something. What is, what is man that God is mindful of us? So has anyone been caught in a thunderstorm with no legitimate place to run or hide? <laughs> Unfortunately, I have so twice, and actually with people in this room. Um, <laughs> one person to remain unnamed keeps leading us on expeditions that put us, our lives in danger. But, um, <laughs> but in both of these scenarios... We've been up high, going over a mountain pass, um, or coming down, and a thunderstorm has rolled right in. And as you look around, there's there's no coverage, there's no big rocks, you're just exposed. And if you've been caught in a thunderstorm like that, or even had a thunderstorm sit right on top of you, it puts a little fear in you, right? It makes you feel super small. And it's amazing the ways that our prayers begin to change instantly. When, when something like that is on top of us. So what, what does that storm reveal to you about yourself? That we are small. Life is fleeting. We could be gone in an instant with one crack. And this should sober us. This should make us think. That the God is transcendent. There is more than us here. And so the transcendent majesty of God is, is an essential bedrock for us to understand the meaning and purpose of life. Because it starts with God as the foundation of all things. But if our understanding of God ends here, we are in danger of hopelessness or despair. Because who can answer to a holy, infinite, majestic God? No one. That's why we need to consider the second point. God's imminent care. So here's the second point, the imminent care. God's imminent care is evident because man has been created in the image of God. Say that again. God's imminent care is evident because man has been created in the image of God. So as David contemplates his smallness and realizes that he is nothing before God, this passage then takes an unexpected pivot. Though man is small, God does care for him. And this kind of question, we see this kind of question uh, posed in Scripture in a number of other places. Um, we, we see it posed in Job 38 and 39 and Romans 9, and really where God asks of man, of who are you, O man? Who are you? Um, and, and really, that question gets asked of man to bring some humbling, where man has thought too much of himself. But here, there is a humbling aspect to the question but it's pushing us towards something else. David goes on to show how God is mindful and caring of man, namely creating him in the image of God. And so, so the, this question takes a turn. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? So let, let's take a closer look at verses 5 to 8 to see, see where uh, this is coming from. So uh, verse 5 says, uh, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So right at the beginning, this word "yet" provides such a significant pivot, right? Who are you, uh, 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 who are you, O oh God, that you're mindful of man? Yet, right? Yet, and, and he, he transitions, and he, and he's going to tell us why here. So he says, "Yet you have made him a little lower." So just there's a couple of technical comments here in, in this verse just for us to understand what I, I think uh, maybe we'll make the point a little more clear. So uh, it, our Bible says here, it says, made him a little lower. And so in, in, the, in the language, we have the verb that comes first that it says, you, God, you have made him low. You have made him lack is the idea that it puts forth. And then that's followed the verb is followed by the adjective, little. So you have made him low, little. And, and I think what this is saying is that we have, been, uh, uh, we have been made low for little in a temporal sense, in a time sense. We have been made little for a, a little while. That's kind of confusing there. Um, but uh, we are made uh, low for a little while. And then we go on to the next part of the sentence where it says, than the heavenly beings. So if you notice in your Bible, there's going to be a footnote there next to heavenly beings. And it says, it says uh, if I look at, I'll look at mine here again, it says, or than God. So it could be heavenly beings, or than God. So the, the word that is used there at the end for heavenly beings is Elohim. And if you've heard that name, it sounds familiar. It is often a name uh, that is used of God. And for God in, in the in the big G proper sense, um, but the, the word also has usage in a small G sense, uh, God or gods, and in fact it, it's it's plural. And uh, I, I think our, our our passage is is right here to say, point to heavenly beings, and angels, um, and and it would it would make a little less sense if we said something to the effect of. Uh, God has made him lower than God, right? You have made him lower than God. God has made him lower than God. So uh, the preference of, of God's in the lowercase, uh, and, and this is supported also in, in Hebrews 2.6, and, and it supports this translation where it says, it quotes this passage and says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. So, so we see something about that. So technical thing aside, the big point, Man has been made low for a little while, lower than the heavenly beings. And once again, we see this theme of God being pleased to work through weakness on his own timetable. So God is pleased to work through weakness. So we go on. He says, verse, uh, second part of verse 5, And crowned him with glory and honor. So though man is inferior for a time to heavenly beings, he has uniquely been crowned with glory and honor. This is significant in that the man, man has been created with value and purpose. So all, all of us were created in this world with value and, and purpose. Honor and glory are terms that are most commonly used to describe God, yet they are placed upon man. So we go on in verse 6, he says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. So man has been made a steward of God's creation to care for it and protect it. And then verses 6 through 8, it says, You have put all things under his feet. All things have put, been put beneath man. And then we see the examples of, of sheep and oxen, beasts, birds, fish, and everything that passes over the seas. So man, man has been given authority, and all things have been put under his feet. So as we read this passage, uh, we should hear something, hear something uh from Genesis 1 through 3, something of the creation account here with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we see that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They were created with glory and honor. They were created to be stewards of the garden, to possess authority over all things that God has placed under them. But we also must remember that originally in the garden before the fall, they were dwelling in the presence of God. God was imminent. He was present to care for his people as they cared for his creation. And that is until the fall happened that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit because, the, because they believed the lie that they could become like God, that they could become transcendent. So as we look to what God intended and his care for man, the, the work of his fingers is all over this. That God has created man In his image, and that sets man is 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 unique and with a significant purpose for his life. And so God, God is transcendent, yet he is also imminent in caring for man in every single detail. So why is imminence important? I think it's important because God's transcendent majesty includes his personal care for his people. He is a God who is near and desires to dwell among his people. Uh, But there's more uh, to this than simply being created in the image of God. As we noted earlier, man's heart does not naturally seek after God. In fact, man is in need of a restoration because the image of God has been corrupted. It's been marred by the fall. So as as we look around, how good a job is man doing at caring for creation and loving his neighbor all by himself. It's like a toddler thinking that he can babysit himself. There is a crisis around every corner. And we think about this in in our world with corrupt politicians, climate change, drinkable water shortage, unclean water, overuse or abuse of natural resources, animals losing habitats and going extinct, poverty, hunger, racial tensions, war, irreparable conflict. This is what it looks like when man pursues transcendence on his own and why we need the imminent care of God to come and restore us. So a question for us all and for you personally, do you hunger and thirst for this reality in your life and for this reality in all the earth? For God to become, to be present and to fix things, to fix things in here and to fix things out there, do you long for that? Do you desire that? This is part of being human. We've been created with an awareness that there is the potential of a better life. This longing doesn't escape the imminent watch of God nor his care, for he has always had a plan. Part of God's majesty is how he works through weakness in order to display his own transcendence and glory for man's joy. So, if we still have a question about God's imminent care and his imminent care for man, there is only one place we need to look, and it is foreshadowed right here in this passage. In verse 4, the inclusion of Son of Man is significant. Son of man is a very interesting word study throughout the Bible, and one that I've, I've only begun to scratch the surface of. But in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, with incredible frequency, refers to himself as the son of man. A literal translation is son of Adam, son of Adam. And a- Adam is essentially the same word as man. They can be used interchangeably. Um... So, if Jesus is the son of Adam, we go back to Genesis 3, where God places a curse on the serpent, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall crush his heel. Since that curse was spoken to the serpent, we have long anticipated this offspring, the future son of Adam and Eve. Uh, to come forth and crush the serpent's head. So let's consider how Jesus is anticipated by asking some questions of this text here. So who set their glory above the heavens and put the moon and stars in their place? Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Next question. By the mouth of what baby has God established strength in his kingdom to silence the enemy? Luke 1, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Who was made low and crowned with glory and honor? Philippians 2, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Who has been given dominion over all creation? John 3. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand who has had all things put under his feet, Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Whose name is majestic in all the earth? His name is Jesus. The long-anticipated Son of Man, he has come to deal with sin and death and the mortal enemy. Jesus is the true image of God to whom we must abide in and be conformed to. So as we conclude here, Jesus is the full expression of God's transcendent majesty and imminent care. Who was pleased to come and dwell among man that we might find joy forevermore. When you look at Jesus, do you see his transcendent majesty? Do you see his imminent care? And not do you just see these things, do you know these things? Does his life and his work lead you to proclaim, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? If your heart remains hardened or indifferent to the transcendent and imminent person of Jesus, I pray that it be softened. If you feel your heart is softened and desiring more of him, I pray that God gives you grace to draw ever more closer to know him and to see his beauty with greater clarity. And we desire all this that his name would be praised, that the transcendent and imminent God would be praised among the nations, among the earth, among our congregation, in our own hearts and souls. So let's pray and ask God to help us with this. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we come to you as such weak, fragile, little people in need of, of a Savior. Lord, in need of someone to come and to make things right. Lord, we confess that we disregard your transcendence. We, don't, we often don't have a right fear or respect for your name. So, Lord if that is lacking, would you grow that in us? But Lord, for others of us too, we have a hard time believing that you are a close, personal, and loving God. So Lord, for those of us that that struggle to know and have relationship with you, would you draw near? Would you bring comfort? Would you help us to know you truly? And to the Lord know that you are both of these things and both of these things fully. So Lord, we as a church are dependent on you Our desire is that your name would be glorified in all the earth, that your majesty would be seen. So, Lord, help us to see that and to give you praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.